Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding, and I have a couple, two guests today, so hopefully we don't jack up the recording. Uh, last one John and I had with four of us on there, just three, so I think we're good, but we have John, who y'all know by now, a regular host, co-host, and Jerrica, appearance number two, who is our product manager. Jerrica, welcome. Thanks, guys. The last one you did, I think, was around the upsells, right? It was around how to how to manage post-purchase tracking and upsell tracking. Yep. Yep. That was me. All righty. We got some bright minds on the pod today. And today we are going to go deep into user identification, the world of cookies, and share some exciting rollouts for all of our all of our customers. All right. So We've gotten some feedback. I've gotten some feedback recently with some of these episodes that can be fairly technical to uh, before we just dive right into the weeds to start at a little bit higher level, just to take the KISS approach, keep it simple and just to set the stage. I'm going to try my hardest, but that's why I have John and Jerrica here to keep me uh, keep me honest and not go right into the weeds. So before we get into user identification and browser versus uh, server side set cookies, John, let's just start. You mentioned right before we started recording, talk about what is a cookie, define a cookie for our listeners. Yeah, like the name cookie is such a strange. I remember when I was starting to learn this stuff, I could never get over the word cookie. It, it just screwed with my head. I never quite understood what it was. And now that I work with them every day, I think I have a bit better of an understanding of what they are. So really what it is, is kind of like a label that's in your browser. Sounds horrible to say it's like a barcode because it's like we're barcoding people. But in a way, that is kind of what it is. And these cookies can have different names. So maybe Clavio has a cookie for their stuff. Google Ads has a cookie for their stuff. But really, it's a name like Google Ads along with some sort of like label or barcode. That's my simplest explanation. It lives in your browser and it's kind of like a label or a barcode. I don't know, Jerrica, if you have anything you want to add to that or if you agree or disagree with that. No, I like that analogy. And the use case for cookies, like why they even exist is for identity tracking, right? It's so that Facebook can know you are the person that clicked through this ad or is connected to this profile, their unique ID for you almost. Yeah, exactly. What are a few other use cases? So with, with cookies in general, there's obviously cookies that tie your cart. So it connects multiple items in a cart. And when you come back to the site, it'll, instead of having to add products to your cart again, there are cookies that'll help store that or store your login. The barcode example to me makes sense. It's really simple. But any any other nuances of just in the world of tracking of what cookies are doing or what, what cookies are allowing for? They play a fundamental part in the way tracking works. So if you've ever looked at a URL, say from Facebook with a click ID, the click ID is what links the ad click to behavior on a website. So when you look at a link from Facebook or, or probably any ad platform that you're using, there will be a URL parameter. So this is just a little label in the URL and that label in the URL gets stored in a cookie. So that label is just getting transferred 
from the URL to your browser. So it's saved when the URL changes. But that cookie eventually links all the clicks from these ad platforms to conversions. So in our world, that's why cookies are so important. Because as soon as we lose the label, there's no connection from the click to the conversion. So they look like they could be direct traffic. When you look in Google Ads, for example, somebody who made a purchase who originated from a Google Ads click, it'll show zero conversions because we've lost the connection or the label. So that brings us to where the complexity in cookies really hits all of us and why we are having this particular episode. So cookies don't last forever. So as various rollouts have happened, whether it was ITP, so WebKit, which is an open source browser, essentially that Safari and Firefox and others utilize, when they've started putting restrictions on cookies, that has opened up these other ways that marketing platforms like a Facebook or TikTok or Klaviyo or whoever it might be need to look at identifying users so they can essentially prove ROI from their advertising. So if people are paying the money to advertise on their platform, so Facebook ad, Facebook needs to demonstrate to the advertiser that they're actually making money from their ads. So bring it back. We are now cookies don't last forever. Let's start with expirations. Why do cookies expire? Is it browser restrictions? Yeah, I was, I was just wondering, like, they're not, how are they going to know the answer? Why? <laughs> But but they do. So cookies expire, right? Yeah, I think there are browser restrictions on this. Or obviously, Facebook wants to have its cookie last as long as possible, forever if possible. But that's not the world we live in, where Facebook has to adhere to Safari's rules, to Chrome's rules. And Chrome and Safari will say, no, this is my browser, my rules. And it will restrict the cookie expiration period to be, I don't know if it's seven days, 14 days, but it will restrict it smaller than Facebook wants it to be. That means, say your Facebook user clicks through an ad, navigates the website, maybe adds something to the cart, but ultimately doesn't purchase. And they're still thinking about it. They come back maybe a few more days, but it's on day eight, the day after their cookie expired on day seven, and then they purchase. Facebook will then cannot tie that user, that purchase back to that original ad click and cannot report on that revenue, which it did in fact play a hand in converting. Right. So to pull us back, so why cookies expire a little bit. Great explanation, Jerrica. John, from your perspective, and this, I would say my belief is a lot of this targeting from browsers of, hey, we're going to restrict cross-site scripting and expire cookies really was due to malicious activity. So it was trying to reduce malicious activity where you would have trackers that, again, most of us that run websites, you won't really know if you just you're handed like, hey, copy and paste this script. It's going to help us track things, but you don't really know what it's doing. Would you agree that that's really where this started was to stop malicious activity where people are scraping and potentially selling user information? Yeah. And also like this trend comes from Apple, right? And WebKit browsers where there's, unfortunately, there's two different kinds of cookies. And I don't know if we should even get into that, but there's more malicious or I don't know how to say it, but a third party cookie has more control of your data than you probably want it to, or can transfer information about you around the internet in a way that you may not want it to. And that was Safari's WebKit's original target was to prevent that kind of data transmission from happening. So those are like the display ads. That's a good example of a third-party cookie where an ad vendor is aware of what you're doing on two different sites, which is weird and a little bit creepy, right? And I think that was the original target for WebKit and Apple. They didn't like that. And they started kind of hammering down on those. And now they're not even available. These third-party cookies are not even available in WebKit browsers, 
with like the first party cookie. So now these are the cookies that are still allowed to be in Safari browsers. Those cookies, WebKit and Apple Safari are starting to kind of hammer down on too because they do have issues with privacy. I, I guess like the perspective, and I can't really speak for Apple, but in my opinion, it's kind of like Apple saying, why do you have to have this information in our user's browser? And why does it have to last for this long? And in what scenario should we allow this information to last a certain amount of time? And in what search situation should we be really hard on it? So one of the situations is if you come in from an ad click, Safari behaves differently than if you don't. So this is an arbitrary decision by Apple. And they're saying, if somebody comes in from a Google ad click, we don't want the browser to be able to save information about the user forever. We know that this is ad information that's going to be trying to be saved. And we're going to make the decision that we want to prevent this from happening. So these are sort of arbitrary decisions by Apple. There's no physical laws. The cookies aren't actually expiring in the cookie jar. They could last forever. And Chrome, they do last a really long time because, well, advertising is a more fundamental part of Google's business than it is Apple's. So I've gone on a bit of a tangent here, but that's sort of the nature of it. It's decisions by Apple that are making these things expire. Yep. Let's go back to third parties to clear that up. So the use case here, the example here, I go to Cuts Clothing. I look at a t-shirt. A couple days later, I'm going to check the weather for vacation and I see Cuts Clothing ads plastered everywhere on weatherchannel.com. That's what a third-party cookie is enabling. Still functions and still works in Chrome. Safari, it doesn't. You can test this out yourself. Go browse a couple sites in Chrome on your desktop, then go to news page or weather channel or whatever it might be. Go to a bigger site that uh, probably has these ad, ad placements and auctions, and you're likely to see some of this remarketing. Do it in Safari or do it incognito, and you won't see it. You'll see more generic ads. So that's third-party cookies. Today, if 70% of your traffic is coming from Safari, which is very normal, that's going to be iOS on a phone plus Safari and on desktop or a combination of both, then your third-party display is not going to work. 30% are on Chrome or browsers that don't have that restriction, that remarketing would still function. So that's third-party cookies, not completely relevant for our world, at least in this conversation, but first-party cookies is what you just described. And Jerrica was going through in terms of Facebook wants to match views and clicks on their platform to activity on site, which we know will do two things. A, help Facebook better report on performance of ads, but B, also help in efficiency of bidding. So the formula to win a bid in a Facebook auction is essentially bid plus estimated action rate plus ad quality. Estimated action rate, that's the tracking. That's like how likely is Facebook predicting that this user is going to take an action if we show this ad in front of them. So that gives you the formula and then they weight that across different advertisers. So in the world of first-party cookies, we're going to unpack this. We'll go one layer deeper here. And Jarek, I'm going to tee this up for you since I know you you got a question this week, I think, from a, a customer that was evaluating or, or a brand that was evaluating Elevar. And they asked, I think, very fair and complex question at the same time. What is that question? And uh, Jarek will tee it up for you. Again, first-party cookies. Yeah. So I was talking with a brand evaluating Elevar and they asked me, so what really is the difference between a browser side cookie, a client set, client side set cookie versus a server set cookie? And I struggled to explain it. So John, I'm excited to hear a little bit of how you would answer that question. 
Yeah. So I just want to like reframe everything we've been discussing up to now, and then I'll try and give an explanation. So cookies are like a label. They associate ad clicks and what's in your cart to you in the browser. They expire. They erode over time. Sometimes when you expect them to be there, they're gone. And when they're gone, Oftentimes, that person looks like a brand new user. So they might have all this event data, all this funnel data where they added something to the cart and they viewed some bunch of collections and they began a checkout. And there's all this rich data in your analytic systems and your marketing channels about them. But like Jerrica said, they take a break. Let's say they don't come to your site for eight days and they come back. And then they make the purchase. All of that information that happened, all of that funnel information that we had on them is completely disconnected from the purchase. So now that person looks like they were direct traffic, potentially, and they purchased. That's really bad, right? It looks like this great funnel that was working didn't actually work. Now let's go back to the server cookie and the browser cookie. Can I add one more caveat in there real quick? Yeah. So use the eight-day example their WebKit, so WebKit right now, if you are coming, if a user is coming from what they define as a known tracker, and there's a public known tracker list that DuckDuckGo utilizes, so it's another privacy-forward browser. In GitHub, I think there's 27,000 known trackers, as when I was looking last week. 27,000 known trackers. I think WebKit's using most or all of them, but they don't really say, but they say they this is the part of the list they're using. But if someone's clicking on a Google ad, and coming to your site. In that use case, it's not those those cookies don't expire in seven days, they expire in 24 hours. So where this has become very impactful for many of our customers and just everyone in general, it's not just e-commerce or Shopify brands. If you just go to Google Analytics, I'll just use an example of someone I was looking at yesterday, 65% of their traffic was on browsers. So Safari and Firefox that would match this rule of, okay, they're going to play within these rules that WebKit enforces. And then within that 65% of traffic, if you just do, so within Google Analytics, just off the top of my head, just go under operating system browser, do a a match for looking for Safari and Firefox. That'll give you a percentage. So you'll see 65% of traffic once you filter it down and then do a secondary dimension of campaign. And then your campaigns are essentially going to be trackers. So campaign is going to be Facebook UTMs, Klaviyo UTMs, et cetera. And from that window, 70% of their Safari traffic was coming from known campaign traffic. So without doing all the math on that, it was greater than 50% of their traffic that was coming to the site. Instead of the seven-day expiration, all of their cookies, all of their marketing cookies were expiring in 24 hours. So that's where the seven days is a big deal, but 24 hours is a really big deal. So I just wanted to... Not, not not to do like the fear mongering or anything, but I think there's a lot of that. There's a uh, great site, cookiestatus.com, which will actually show you browser by browser what the limitations are because they are very different and there are nuances on that. Sorry, John, back to you. Yeah, and that that affects every single channel. It even affects GA. Yeah. So let's go back to this idea of the server set cookie and the browser cookie. You can forget everything I'm about to say in the next 30 or 45 seconds. It doesn't really matter. But the nuts and bolts are that cookies can get be set in a couple of different ways. They can be set from the server or they can be set from JavaScript. If you set a cookie from the server, the only way you can do it is if it's a server 
that's hosting the website. So if it's Nike.com, then Nike.com can make the set cookie command only from Nike.com. Any other scripts that are loaded on the page, even if those scripts are actually from Nike.com, are not able to make this set cookie command from the server. If the set cookie command is made from the server, Safari allows it to last a year. So again, this is sort of arbitrary. This is like a government rule. It's like, why can I only travel 60 on this road and not 70? Because Safari said so. There's no like physical laws that make this so. It's just a rule. So WebKit, Safari, will accept this command issued from the server and allow it and say, okay, I accept that this cookie should stay one year and I won't expire it in a day. But any other cookies that are set, and I'm being general here, this is not exactly right, but any other cookies that are set, Safari will look at and say, this cookie wasn't set from the server. I'm expiring it tomorrow. So you can think of Safari and other WebKit browsers as kind of always looking at how these cookies are set, in what context, and then making a decision on whether they should expire it tomorrow, in seven days, or in a year. Does that make sense? That does, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's an arbitrary thing. It's an arbitrary rule that that's that we're basically abiding by, but we do take advantage of it with Shopify Y. And I don't know if you want to talk about that, Jerrica. Before we get into that, let's let's actually unpack the, the server aspect. So our customers that are hosted on Shopify, they have a storefront, they're using 1.0 or 2.0. Their site is physically hosted on Shopify servers. Forget the nuance of, are the, is it Google Cloud, Amazon, whatever, but Shopify owns, essentially, they are the, they are the host server, correct? Exactly. Okay. So in that case, if Shopify is setting specific cookies, then Shopify is reasonable to expect that any cookies set by the Shopify server will fall into this rule that you set. So Safari will respect that and that can be used for whatever reason, whether it's Shopify analytics or other other ways. Exactly. If the domain where the site lives, Nike.com, issues this command and this command kind of comes into the web browser as a response to the initial query for the website. So when I ask for Nike.com in the browser, the browser goes out, goes to the Nike.com server. Let's say it's on Shopify. Shopify builds the page for us, if it's not headless. And then they send the page back to us. And that's when we see it loading. In that sending of the page back to us, they kind of whisper, hey, can you set a cookie for a year? In that yep. sending of the response, they say that, and that's how it gets set. So Jerrica, you, you actually, I, I missed a point here. You were asking, is there a difference between a server set cookie and a browser cookie? And the answer is no, it's the exact same thing in the browser. It's just how it was set that's different. How it was created, yeah. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to get into the nuance of the latest WebKit rollout in Safari 16.4 and C names and A records and A quad A records and how user IDs and cookies about values are set. There's a dedicated episode, I think it was four or five episodes ago. So you can go listen to that for more context. But you mentioned headless. Let's go back to headless. We have many customers that are headless and they have the benefit since most headless sites, you are provisioning servers and hosting your 
PWA app on the server. So is it fair to say that a headless site also has the same possibility where, again, part of our headless docs, we are recommending or instructing on how to create that user ID, but they should be able to do the same thing to leverage a unique user ID, which we're going to get into in a second. But headless sites seems like they shouldn't have this issue either, correct? Yeah, they they are able to do it if they're in control of the server. And what some people do if they want to set other information server side is they'll actually route their website through something like Cloudflare, gain control of the server, and then from that context, make this set cookie command from the server. Mm -hmm. But what you said about headless sites is true. If you're headless and have control of the server, Mm -hmm. then you can issue these commands and Safari will respect them. Okay, so now let's get into user IDs. User IDs has been something that Obviously, we've been talking a lot about recently over the last year or so, couple of years. It's not really a new concept per se, but with the degradation of cookies and the, frankly, the utility of them in, in the browser and what they can't do anymore. User IDs, let's go through what are they, how do they work, and what are the benefits? So let's start with the, uh, the high level. What are they? What is in the concept of an e-commerce site? What is a user ID? So I would say a user ID is a unique group of numbers or letters that attaches to a unique profile. It's like your license plate number is a user ID for your car and how you can be looked up in the system. Same thing when you're browsing a website, you want to assign a unique user ID so you recognize when that person comes back again and you can link multiple sessions, multiple behaviors under one person. Would you add anything to that, John? Can't add anything to that. That's bang on. Love the license plate. That's it, right? Yeah. Okay. Then we have maybe one step further. So we have in the world of Shopify, Shopify also has a customer ID. So how would you explain the difference between a user ID, which is for every car that exists in the world, and then a customer ID, which maybe that is that a license? So that's a a license for a specific user. So when someone makes a purchase on your website and you have that email address, you know who they are, like that is definitive. But not every person that visits your website, do you know their email address? Have they purchased before? You won't always recognize them. So a customer ID for Shopify is at that point where Shopify knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, this customer is this person. That's when they will have that customer ID available for you. So when you log into an account in Shopify on a Shopify store, or if you make a purchase at that point in time, Shopify knows without a shadow of a doubt who you are and the customer ID is available. But 90% of traffic is anonymous. You still want to identify those people who are anonymous and haven't made a purchase to be able to better remarket to them so that you can ultimately guide them to a purchase. And that's where a user ID comes into the place because you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt if this person is this email address. So you assign that anonymous behavior under a unique profile and start building that profile so that ultimately you can get them to a for sure customer ID identified user. So Facebook uses what's called an external ID. So if you were to pull up events manager, go to any events, so go to your add to cart event or purchase event, and then in the left nav bar, you'll see event deduplication. This is all on memory, but I think it's burned into my memory at this point. And then you'll see three parameters at the bottom. It's going to be your external ID, your FBP, Looking at external ID, so FBP, that is a cookie, as we talked through, so that is a cookie that Facebook's JavaScript is going to set within the browser. Correct, John? Yep. And, and even in their docs, they essentially, I'm summarizing here, but they state that's their 
quote unquote user ID. So their person identifier versus their FBC, which is their click identifier. So inbound ad clicks, which is why FBC versus FEP, FBP in your events, you should see 80, 90, 100%. FBC is usually going to be 20 to 40%, but it depends how much traffic you get from Facebook. But the external ID, that is a the way that Facebook has allowed you, the advertiser, to say, hey, if you have a way to recognize users and and that allows us to stitch together multiple sessions and activity, send us an external ID. So that's essentially the way that an external ID works in the concept of Facebook tracking, correct? Yep. Now, when we talk about Klaviyo or Attentive or Postscript or Recar, Google Ads, et cetera, where there might be a or there frankly is a bigger reliance on a true unique identifier, like an email address or a true customer ID. Let's start with Klaviyo, since probably 80% of people listening to this are Klaviyo customers. How would a unique user ID work in the the world of Klaviyo, John? Yeah, so the way that I've started to think about this is like there's kind of two different types of marketing channels or analytics channels. Some channels don't require a user ID at all. You can just send in data. Like Google Analytics is interested if there's add to carts and there's not a lot of information associated with the add to cart. They don't need an email. You might just want to know how many add to carts happened on the site. But there's other channels like Klaviyo where the information is almost useless without a user. So you send an add to cart to Klaviyo. Well, Klaviyo is not an analytics product. They don't just show you how many add to carts happened by random people. They show you how many people who were signed in did add to carts. So in order to send information to Klaviyo, you need to send an identifier. You can't just send an add to cart without some sort of identity backing it up. So this leads to a whole bunch of problems because the identity, the label is stored in a cookie. And like we were talking about, they're very brittle and they expire. So what oftentimes happens is you have somebody sign in to a Klaviyo form and that's how Klaviyo now knows that you are whoever you are at gmail.com. And then like I said in a previous example, you go through the site and you add something to the card and you view a product and you view a collection and all this information is being sent to Klaviyo because they have your email address and they can associate your behavior with your email address for later email campaigns, right? Like to send an abandoned cart campaign or something like that. But if you can't send the email address along with these events, Klaviyo basically won't even accept them. Right. So that opens up a huge issue. And maybe I'll let you guys kind of take it from there. But that that's sort of the problem is you have a channel like Klaviyo that requires a label or an identifier, and that label is being eroded and getting lost. And we're not even able to send the data in once we've lost the label. And just to recap, the user ID for Klaviyo primary is their cookie. So their cookie is that barcode. That's their quote unquote user ID. If that doesn't exist then in order for any information to process in Klaviyo, the user ID needs to be an email address, essentially. Yeah. I think you actually need either an email address or a phone number. I could be wrong here. Maybe you can also send an ID, a Klaviyo ID. Yeah. But yes, the exactly. The the point I'm trying to make is Klaviyo in particular and other channels like it require an ID and that ID is always being eroded. Right. So we can extend that to 
just talk Google ads, Google ads, same thing. They have multiple types of cookies. And if cookies don't exist, then they have their enhanced measurement where you can separately from a conversion happening, you can upload enhanced measurement details. So email, phone number, address, et cetera. And then that will, can allow Google to match back to activity that they may have received, but it was anonymous where they, were, they weren't able to match it back to a cookie. Is that essentially correct with Google ads? Yeah. Okay. And by the way, we're talking to the two people here who have built out our Google Ads server-side integration. So they would be the two that would would uh, be able to uh, share more. And we'll, we'll have a separate episode, which will go through just the Google Ads server-side integration. So just to go back to user IDs, we talked about what they are, how they work. So what are the benefits? So the benefits of user identification. So let's say we're in that world where the cookie trackers, they're expiring between 24 hours and seven days. So the benefit of a user ID is what? So if we have the ability to leverage a user ID to reference previous activity, what are the benefits of that? Marketing channels cannot target and plan for data they don't know about and information they don't know about. So if we are in this beautiful world where we can always recognize a returning user, then destinations like Clavio, they can send more card abandonment emails because they have that profile they can match to, to send email address information for people who are browsing the site who they otherwise wouldn't have. Destinations like Facebook have better, you can actually do better remarketing campaigns for people who have added something to their cart or browse something and didn't purchase. Better matching that back to people who actually completed those actions on your website. That's what I'd say that the main benefit is that type of remarketing becomes so much more enhanced because you have so much more data connected to that user profile. So how do we do that? How do you solve for that riddle? Because what I'm hearing is user IDs, that's a cookie, that's a label, it expires in 24 hours. John, you mentioned if someone logs in, then Clayville can recognize maybe that's a nuance. I just want to clarify. It doesn't necessarily mean they're logging into their account on Shopify. It could be submitting a Clavio pop-up for 10% off or something like that, or email and a sign-up, th- things of that nature. But if cookies expire and no one's creating an account, logging in, or a very small percentage are, how do we solve for that? Or what are the different ways to solve for recognizing returning users? So I would say what we've started to do is we've built this tool called Session Enrichment. And what we do is we now listen. So Elevar listens on that Shopify store for that user to give us any user identifiable information. We listen for email address, phone number, first name, last name, things we can then send to destinations that they can then match to users. So we listen for that and then we store it offsite in our servers. Then with every future server event that we send, we can match, look back to see does Elevar have our own user identifier that matches, that's stored with user identifiable information that matches that shopper that's browsing your website. If we have a match, we will enrich every future server event with that user identifiable information. We will enrich it with the email address, with the phone number, so that destinations like Clavio and Google Ads and Facebook can then better match and better do their remarketing. We also use that server set cookie. So what we do is we've actually somewhat hijacked Shopify, how Shopify sets their own server set cookie on every Shopify store. And we use that, which as John mentioned, lasts lasts for a year instead of that 24 hours or seven days. So Shopify has a server set cookie. It lasts for that full year. That's what we key off of. We don't key off of the browser cookies that have those limitations. We use that nice, beautiful one year long server cookie. And that's what we store as our unique identifier offsite. And that will last for a long time for us to continuously recognize that person as a returning user. Anything I missed, John? 
Uh, no, that was perfect. The, on- the only one thing that I want to add is kind of like the magic of all this, Jerrica, like you always talk about, is the reason why we store it off-site. Like off-site's a common word. We always use the word off-site. But what we're actually doing is we're getting outside the, I was going to say dictator government of WebKit, but maybe that's going too far. But we're getting outside of the laws that we have to abide by in Safari and other browsers. Because anything that happens in the browser, we have to abide by those laws. But as soon as we come outside the browser, it's our world. We get to do whatever we want with the information. And we don't do whatever we want with the information, but we do store it. And we're no longer subject to all those rules that we were talking about with cookies. We get to define the rules. We get to say when we want to expire that data. We don't have to listen or abide by the rules of Safari. So as soon as we're able to capture the information and get it off site, like Jerrica said, we kind of take control of the rules and it's our system that gets to dictate how things work. Yeah. And I'll add a couple other points. I think the next question or one of the next questions might get, well, what about consent and privacy and just think about the way our server side consent. So if you're an LVR customer and you're going through and configuring your consent categories for Facebook Cappy or whatever it might be, picture that same option for for this particular session enrichment. So that that's one in terms of not trying to go around legalities and privacy and user choices, but giving you the same options like you would with another channel. And then the the second point I would want to make, we don't need to go too deep in this, is getting to a point where we don't always need to rely on a singular user ID. So obviously we can leverage what we get from Shopify, but we can also leverage what Elevar creates. We can leverage what we're able to pull from other channels, from other, other integrations. So I think having that web of you know, the identity graph of being able to use different points of activity, whatever it might be, connections that we have with a particular brand, but using that to fall back and allow other ways to find that user ID. And then like Jerrica mentioned, enrich those events that we're sending to each destination. The so what of this? So it if you haven't noticed, it's a little bit of a hidden feature uh, announcement and rollout. Uh, no, uh, no big uh, star, you know, fireworks or anything going off here. But inside, a lot of fireworks. We're very excited for this as we've been beta testing this for a couple months at this point. But the the so what is if we just look at Clavio, and we're not the only one that's enhancing or trying to enhance Clavio processes, but Clavio seeing twenty to fifty to sometimes two to three x more add to carts and product views in a particular segment with server-side events because the activity, just like the conversion API, we're sending the events to Klaviyo through their server-side API and able to match that to a user profile that Klaviyo has. Obviously, you can do the math in terms of ROI. If you can send more, recognize more returning users, which means more abandoned browse or add to cart abandonment emails are going out, so more revenue that you're able to capture. We've been doing some beta testing with, I don't know, John, five to 10 folks on Google Ads for server-side tracking. And I was looking at one last night. I almost slipped and said the name, but their server-side conversions are, they're up 18%. So 80% more conversions than their their pre-existing conversions. But I think from the LOVR side, it's just continuing more and more of these, these destinations to just improve ROI. We see Facebook, the immediate match rates go from Facebook. So going from 5% emails for review content to 20% email match rate, which we've seen with a few customers, they're just able to scale more efficiently. So they're able to meet their ceiling of a budget that they're trying to get to with, with new customer acquisition. But anything else I've missed there in terms of what the so what like getting to the answer of this 40 minute episode of so what if you can do all this and now we don't have to worry about cookies and yada 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 like so what what does it mean for me as a business Jericho, go ahead 
I was just going to say, at the end of the day, it just means more money. It just means your ads can do and perform better. Your e- you can send more emails, more emails equals more money. Go ahead, John. Yeah. Like it's the easiest kind of upgrade. You do nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just install the latest <laughs> version of our data layer and suddenly pretty much everything we touch server side gets a bump and not just like a 1% bump. I see the emails that Brad, you send out to all the different clients that you've been doing the beta tests on. And these are s- serious changes. Like like Brad was saying, even a 20% increase is huge, but yeah. we've seen way more than that. And all the stuff, all the details, I guess, in a way don't really matter. That's kind of our job. We're supposed to be the ones who do it all. It is, I think, to some people interesting why all this stuff. I think everyone should kind of have an understanding of it because there's lots of fear mongering in the industry. And, you know, people talk about it. cookies are going away and yeah, they are, but mm-hmm. they're just, the kind of cookie that might not matter. And so I think it's it's important to kind of get a grip on this stuff. But yeah, like Jerrica said, it's easy, easy money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So two yeah. two last questions that I'll ask myself and just maybe state the obvious. Why why are you guys sharing so much about how Elevar works? To me, when I look back at the core of our business, our flywheel, it's about trust. So a couple of years ago, that was a big value prop was we want you to trust your data. And same thing with Elevar. We want you to trust what Elevar is doing for you. I don't want us to be a black box and black magic. And we'll tell you exactly how it's working. That way you have trust and you can validate and see for yourself and do these type of podcasts just to educate you so it doesn't seem like a, a black box to you. So that's number one. And then number two, to all your competitors listening out there, that's fine too. We'll tell you how it works because we're on the next. We're working on the next phase and uh, you know, a little tongue in cheek there. But again, to, to me, with so many customers listen to this, it's an opportunity for us to share exactly how we work, why we're doing it, what, what are the problems that we know you're facing. This is what we live in and do on a day-to-day basis. And I never want the, the question to come back to us of, we don't really know what you guys are doing or we don't really trust what you're doing. I'd rather just be transparent and honest and keep it real, which is one of our core values. So that's that. Jerrica, John, any, anything before we wrap up or anything to add? to that. Yeah. I think the other thing that being open about this stuff helps with is making our system really compatible, really, really compatible. Almost all cases, you can sort of bring your own ways of doing things. So if you have a team that's really, really advanced and has come up with some crazy way to get a user ID across devices and you want to use that, you could just use that with Elevar. We have a way that you can just plug that in. The more closed the system, we all know this from other things that Apple does. And wow, this is becoming me beating up on Apple a little bit. But we know that closed systems are hard to work with, Um, especially if you're working with sophisticated clients. They want to have some control. And we constantly hear that in our calls. So I think that's the other piece of this. It's not even just about sharing, but it's also here's how our system works. And here's how you can think about integrating your specific situation into our system and still taking advantage of all the great stuff that we're doing. Yep. Great point. Jerrica, any last uh, words of wisdom from you? I'll add anecdotally. Um, when I was researching, like, how, how will Elevar choose what label to use for our user ID? When I was researching that, I was talking with a company who 
specializes in this beautiful black magic thing, user identifier tracking. And as I was learning about their software, asking them questions, I continuously got the answer. It's just the magic. It's just, we, we just like, I was like, how does this work? It's just, we, we test, we, there's like thousands of different logic behind the scenes that does X, Y, and Z to like make it work. And I'm like, but how, but what's, what is that logic? And I just continuously got, it's just the magic. You just have to trust it. And that's why I love how transparent we are, because when you understand it, when you know, there's not a monster in your closet, you can sleep safe at night. And now, you know, with your LFR tracking, there's no monster in your closet. You can sleep safe at night. My son will love that analogy. I'll, uh, I'm going to tell, <laughs> tell him that. As I was sleeping in bed with him last night, I was sharing with uh, John and Jerrica. Not not the best night of sleep last night. I was uh, in my, my son's bed sleeping with him as he woke up from the bad dream. Probably about monsters under his bed. But all right, with that, 45 minutes in, this is awesome. John, Jerrica, thanks for hopping on and uh, just going through this process. As always, if anyone listening, if you have feedback, questions, shoot us an email. Brad at Gadelvar, Jerrica at Gadelvar, Jonathan at Gadelvar. Otherwise, we'll see you on the next step. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again.